Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here at First Christian Church. I'm very glad you're with us. Welcome to each of you here in the West Auditorium. To everybody in the East, we're very glad you're with us today. Everybody in Lovington, glad you're making it to church today. And to everybody online, we're glad you're making it to church as well. I would like to uh, invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is what, you know, five-eighths of the way through the Bible. Um, it's in the Old Testament. It's a, a book that probably you haven't looked at a whole lot in the past. We're going to look at it today. If you're a guest with us, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne, and I'm one of the pastors here. While you're looking for Ezekiel, uh, I want to tell you something that occurred on August 23rd, 2011. That's when, in the middle of the day, a, um, a 5.8 earthquake on the Richter scale, 5.8 on the Richter scale, hit in a very unusual place in the U.S., where we don't usually have earthquakes, that was on the East Coast. The center of the earthquake was actually in Virginia, close to Washington, D.C., and uh, it was felt all the way down to North Carolina, uh, going south and all the way up to New York City. And that, the people in that center of the world, that portion of the world, are not used to earthquakes, so there was nobody, they, you know, they're not set up to think about it, except um, at the Washington National Zoo. The next day after the earthquake, uh, the Washington Zoo and that had a press release that said, we would like you to be aware of how our animals acted during the earthquake. The elephants went all inside their enclosure and refused to come out inside their little house, if you will, a big house. And even when it was eating time, they were not coming out, were too afraid. Uh, all the deer, they left their enclosure and went out and stood in a field together. The lions, they did something very unusual. They got together in a in a group and looked at the building where they would normally go in and as if it's going to fall down, let's not be there. The flamingos, they all huddled together like this, one leg. I'm not putting my leg down. You're putting your leg down. I'm not putting my leg down. I'm putting, they did that. The red roughed lemurs, completely different. 15 minutes before the earthquake, they started acting crazy. Sounding alarms. Something's about to happen. Something's about to happen. Something's about to happen. As a matter of fact, they, they, they sounded up 15 minutes before the earthquake happened, and then right before it finished, the alarm went off again. It was as if like, here's the all clear. Everything's going to be fine. And the zoo said, we don't know how they knew that the earthquake was coming. So I guess that means if you live in an earthquake zone, you'd be wise to get yourself a pet lemur. Go for it. Uh, uh, don't get a panda. The National Zoo has pandas, as you know. The pandas did nothing. They just laid there and kept eating, kept eating bamboo. Shaking all around. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. But the lemurs? Fascinating. They knew it was coming 15 minutes before. How, how do they know that? You know, I, I'd kind of like a lemur in my, off, in, in, my, in my life and in my office from time to time. <laughs> I'd like some advanced warning, if you will that some struggle is coming, that some shaking come along. It'd be nice to know ahead of time if Washington, D.C. or Springfield is going to do something that's going to bring a little chaos into our civic lives. It'd be great to know of impending chaos. At least to be warned, I think it'd be helpful. What we're going to do this weekend and next weekend, and take, we're going to take a look at the book of Ezekiel. It's named after the fellow who is, in many ways, you could say, a watchman, an ancient human red-ruffed lemur in the nation of Judah. He speaks to them in the midst of crisis and chaos and says, this is what's going on. And he's, he's able to say, in the midst of all the shaking, here's how to, how, here's how to take all this in. The nation is going to be in chaos and uh, we're going to see it. I mean, 
Do you think our nation is in chaos? I think at times, certainly at the very least, it's in chaotic vitriol. And I would like to know some biblical responses to how to deal with the mess, if you will. It'd be nice to put our national mood in a biblical context, all the while, if you will, developing a plan for our own personal lives. Because if you're not in crisis right now or chaos, praise the Lord, but truth be told, there's going to be a moment that comes along when it gets a little bit chaotic, where it could be, you know, if you've got kids, there's bound to be a moment when it's stressful, either whether they be children or adults, at work, the boss, clueless, right? And you're the boss. You go, well, how are we going to deal with this? Or you got matters or relationships at church, you got health issues, whatever the case, you go, man, I really wish that I could have somebody give me some direction when the shaking is taking place all around me. So we'll look at this for two weeks. And as we do so, Pastor Jonathan has graciously written a five-day study guide for this week, and one will be coming out next week as well. So if you'd like to study what we're looking at today and on, you know, for the next five days, uh, be able to say, okay, I, I would like to follow that and kind of give some more thought to that. There are two ways you can do this. If you're part of our texting service, text the words first to cater to 24587. If you've already signed up for that in the past, you don't have to do it again. We have some 900 people who are involved in that right now. So if you'd like to get this five-day study guide, about 20 minutes a day, looking at a scripture and some self-examining, reflective questions, text the word first to cater to 24587. Or you can pick up the study guide at either of the welcome desks here in, in, the, um, in the building, okay? So again, 24587, text the words first to cater to that. I, I think, can I, I'll be candid. Ezekiel is such a, a tricky book in many ways that I've been preaching for more than 30 years and I have never preached through the book of Ezekiel. I've never preached a study like we're doing right now because it's very hard, it's complicated, and uh, I just needed a few years to get, get it under my belt, to be honest. And so if you'd like to study a little bit more, I'd suggest you do that. And to help us a little bit today, I'd like to give us a little bit of history, a historical context of what's going on. That's both found in Scripture and in history outside of Scripture. Here's what's going on when you read the book of Ezekiel. In 722 BC, more than 2,700 years ago now, 700 years before Jesus came, 722 BCE, the, the Assyrians, what we would call present-day Syria, took control of the ancient Near East. And as they did so, they literally annihilated 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel had 12 different groupings of families, we call them tribes, Probably at this point, about 3 million people, 10 of the 12 tribes were literally annihilated, disappeared from the face of the earth. The remaining Jewish people were shocked and quickly turned to God for help. And they followed, after, they followed a guy, eventually a fellow by the name of King Josiah, who was a very godly man and helped the nation that was left behind to focus on God's plans and instructions. As a matter of fact, it got so bad that they... You can put it this way. Instead of just being called Israel now, the, the two tribes that were left were Judah and Benjamin, and they became known as the nation of Judah. And so Josiah, as the king of this new, smaller nation, Judah, does very well. But the good days of biblical living eventually gave way because in, 16, in 612, 100 years later, the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians. The Babylonians is modern-day Iraq. They have defeated the Assyrians, and in the process, long story short, Josiah was killed, 
And his heirs, his sons, and then his sons, sons, and the next kings in line were not men who followed God. And since they didn't listen to God's instructions, they typically made very poor choices for the Jewish nation, living under Babylonian control. And um, they, they um, it, 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 you can put it this way, that they lived under God's protection and they would wander off. And every time they wandered off, the nation would get into trouble. And too often they made treaties with nations that were opposed to Babylon over and over again. And eventually the Babylonian ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, by the time you get to 586 BC, he'd had it up to here with the people of Judah, that they weren't following what he said to, to, that they should do, and they weren't following what God said they should do. And so consequently, he sent his army against the city of Jerusalem and against the people of Judah. And so in 586, the capital city, Jerusalem, was destroyed. The reigning king was captured. He was forced to watch his sons be executed, and then he was blinded. Many citizens were murdered, and others were deported to Babylonia. And um, chaos ruled the day. It's a horrendous time of, of history. The exiles were forced to live in Babylon. The people left behind in Jerusalem were destitute. And one of those exiles who was forced to live in Babylon was a guy by the name of Ezekiel. And his book details God's instructions to the people who were living there. And his primary message is this. If you want to get back under the blessing and more importantly, under the protection of God, here's what we've got to do in the midst of our crisis and chaos. And so would you read with me how this all came about? We're going to start in chapter two. We'll come back to chapter one in a minute. But Ezekiel's message is basically found in chapter two, beginning in verse three. God says to Ezekiel, son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, and God's basically said, because I don't think they're going to listen because they are a rebellious people. So whether they listen or fail to listen, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, don't be afraid of them or their words. Don't be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Don't be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. So you can see, frankly, Ezekiel has a very tall order in front of him, tall task. Apparently, he's the right man for the right job at the right time, though it appears it's going to be a thankless job. And the question I think that you have to ask right off the bat is, how did he know this was God's plan for his life? How is he going to learn what to say? Well, that's the story of chapter 1. We're going to turn back there because in chapter 1, we're going to see that Ezekiel experienced God's presence before he spoke to the mess of chaos around him. He was a man of worship before he dealt with the chaos. And there's a powerful lesson there. There might be all sorts of chaotic crisis stuff around you. If that's the case, you could speak God's word to that chaotic mess. Fair enough. But you can only manage that word. You can only manage the chaos effectively if you start in God's presence, if you start with worship. So let's see how that played out for Ezekiel. Chapter 1, verse 1. In my 30th year and the fourth month on the fifth day. How old is Ezekiel as he's writing this? We don't know how old he is when he's writing, but when did this take place? Pardon me. 
He's 30 years old, right? In my 30th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. I'm 30 years old. I'm in Babylon by the Kabar River and I start seeing visions. So when was this? Verse two, on the fifth month of the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. So this is five years and five months into the exile. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. And he has this vision. And he's going to see, I'll tell you now, something really, really strange. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north. An immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. So he's got this fire and stuff and there's four things, four living things in the middle of it. In appearance, their form was human. They kind of look human, but... Each of them had four faces and four wings. I've never seen a human with four faces, let alone four wings. But they must be standing on two feet, if you will. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, but their feet were like those of a calf. So they looked somehow they got hooves on them or something or other. And their, their, their legs and calves gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the, one, the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They didn't turn as they moved. It's a weird vision, right? I mean, if you think about it, this could be a creature out of Star Wars. And this, this would be something in, in the mind of some of our best Hollywood animators and producers and the people that make us think, you know, well, what could other things look like? Well, keep reading, and we'll see a little bit more of what happens. Verse 15, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. So you've got creatures that have wheels attached to them somehow, yet they have legs at the same time. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, which is a precious jewel. So there's lots of light, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. And as they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels didn't change direction as the creatures moved. Their rims, the rims of the wheels, were high and awesome. And all four rims are what? Are full of eyes all around. What's going on? What is this guy seeing? I mean, he doesn't, it appears he doesn't have language to describe what he's seeing. You got a wheel inside a wheel, and the wheels go in all four directions. Hello, that's what we build down the road at Caterpillar, right? Tracks as if the, wheel, the wheels are inside the wheels. And, like a military tank, they, it looks like they're going this way and then they just turn that way and it's the tracks. I, I don't know, but then in addition to that, these wheels have lights inside of them, TV screens, I don't know. We don't have language to understand it fully either. The picture. What you have is you have fantastical creatures, weird-looking things, all in a windstorm. And if you're like me, you wonder, what's all this about? Verse 22, we start to get a clue. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. So you've got these four creatures of the wheels and the legs and the wings and the four faces. And then right above that, you've got this expansive sky or something or other. Verse 25. I, then it, there came a voice from above the vault. So from that expanse above these creatures, a voice comes out 
And they stood with lowered wings. They're no longer flying, they're kind of bowing. And above the vault, over their head, was what looked like a throne. Ah, some sort of king. A throne of lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli is a, is a, um, a very, very expensive stone that is more expensive to mine than gold or even diamonds. So there's uh, this throne made of this precious uh, jewel, and high above on the throne was the figure like that of a man. Ah, we're getting somewhere now. So you got the creatures, you got the throne, you got, is that God? I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like a figure and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. So apparently, what Ezekiel is seeing in this vision is some sort of otherworldly-looking throne room in it that's got, you know, a figure that is in charge of the creatures, and that figure is sort of on fire with some brilliant light around it with all sorts of radiance shining forth, and you go, what is it all about? The key is the very last portion of chapter 1. What's it say? This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Suddenly we got it. He's seeing a picture of heaven or somewhere where God is. He's in the presence of God. And when I saw it, what does he do? I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. He's experiencing the presence of God. He can't fully describe it. There are creatures there that he's never seen before. God's glory is overwhelming. It's, he said it's sort of like a rainbow on a rainy day, but there's radiance everywhere. And his automatic response is to do what? His automatic response to the presence of God is to literally fall face down. He worships God. I want you to notice the sequence. He has this experience where he sees God's presence. It's quite indescribable. He falls face down before God. And then beginning in chapter 2, where we already read, in response to the experiencing the presence of God, he takes on the responsibility of speaking God's word to his fellow exiles. In other words... When you experience God's presence, experience the presence of God carries with it a responsibility to speak into the chaos around you. And that's what Ezekiel had to do. Ezekiel had to speak into the shaking and all the mess that had happened in, the, in their history and how they're living in exile in Babylon and life is really bad. I mean, this isn't a cross-cultural communication with all sorts of ethnic and social barriers. He wasn't being a missionary, if you will. This is a responsibility for his own people. Later on in chapter 3, we read this. God says to him, you're not being sent to a people of obscure and strange speech. It's not people that you have to learn their language, but rather to the people of Israel. Not to many peoples of obscure speech and strange languages whose words you cannot understand. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the people of Israel, for your people. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. The result of being in God's presence is that Ezekiel has to speak to his own people. And we're going, great, great. Because, well, that's got an implication for us being here today. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, we say that whenever we gather, what are we doing? We're experiencing God's presence. We worship. And the very essence of, the, I mean, there's a, an assumption right off the bat because of what Scripture says about God inhabiting the praises of his people. We have this assumption that the moment we gather for worship, 
that God is here, that we are in God's presence. And so in Ezekiel fashion then, in worship, we say we meet God, but then if we're going to be Ezekiel to our world, we have to ask, do we have to also speak God's word to the people of our language and culture? I mean, it's one thing to send missionaries to Kenya and Cuba. Frankly, it's almost easier to speak to those people than it is to our own family, right? Yet, you say, God, I've come to join you and worship you at church. Do I really now have to go and speak to my own people? Are you kidding me? How can I talk to the chaos of my family, my own space? After all, God, I don't have a specific calling in a specific time to a specific situation like Ezekiel had. Do I really have the responsibility? Surely the people around me aren't in chaos, right? God, tell me, tell me, tell me they're not in chaos. Because if they're in chaos, I don't want the responsibility. Well, can I remind you, friends, that when it comes to chaos, people around us are in a mess. Sometimes their own lives are in a mess. All you have to do is take a brief look at the television news, or if you will, take a brief look through your own personal feed on Facebook or any other social media, and you'll learn quickly. Not only is the world around us in chaos, the people around us are in crisis. <laughs> These days, they put it all out for everyone to see, right? So we have no excuse to say that there's not a problem around. So how do we speak into the chaos around us? In the fashion of, of Ezekiel, how do, we, how do we address the issues of our own family life? I've got some ideas for you today, okay? Some, some words for chaos uh, for us today. First of all, may I suggest that you pay attention to the people's needs and that you watch and listen, you open your eyes and look around to see the need, be a watcher, if you will. Ezekiel was a watchman. Be a watcher. Maybe this will explain it. I want you to take a look at this slide. It's a, it's a, it shows this, uh, 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 places of chaos for a little girl. Now, you've got her driving down the freeway. That's lovely. Hands off, Dad's drinking a cup of coffee while she's driving. You've got her sitting on the edge of a, banner, of a railing in, in water. She, what's she look about? 14, 15 months old. And then she's doing what every 14, 15 month old does when Dad's cooking. She handles the sharp knives. Is that how you do it at your house? You go, what? what is that? What kind of parent is that that puts that kind of... Well, kids who are looking at that, please know those are not true photos. Dad photoshopped his daughter into those crazy situations. But adults, I'd say this. There are plenty of places of danger and chaos in the lives of people around us in our own lives where we don't have to Photoshop them in there to say this is a bad situation, right? You got a family setting. You got a setting at work. Those who are in college, you got situations in school where you go, man, that kid over there down the hall, crazy, right? Do we bury our heads in the sand at that, in those moments? We can't, can we? No. Christians are the people who have these kinds of words for chaos. We care and engage, we run to the mess. What's that mean? Well, Pastor, this is language from Pastor BJ, actually. Uh, he brought this to my attention a number of years ago. I think we were doing a, a, we're doing a sermon together. And uh, I, I, it's language that probably was six years ago, seven years ago. And it's stuck with me ever since he, 
he, he, he and, and Mary had just had little Hannah. And he said to me, uh, in front of everybody, you know, Pastor, I, I've discovered something I didn't know I had. And that is that prior to having children, the thought of running to a child in the midst of a vomiting moment, that was foreign to him. You see a person vomiting, I'm out of here. Right? But parents, those of us who have had children, in the midst of a vomiting moment of a three-year-old, do you run to the other room or what do you do? You automatically go to that baby. And yet if you think about it logically, you go, why on earth would I want to do that? Why on earth would I even go so far as to save the carpet? <laughs> right? And yet those of you who are young and don't have kids yet, can, or if you, I'm telling you, that's what you'll do. It's the best metaphor for ministry I've ever heard. We run to the mess. People who follow Christ, can I put it this way? We are first responders of a spiritual kind. Others may run from those suffering from hunger or addiction or anger. They may say, I want nothing to do with anyone who's got an illness or who's fragile or there's any disease or strife, I'm out of here. If there's danger or deprivation or instability or violence, mm -mm, not me. If there's criminality or viciousness or struggle or malice or pain, I'm not, I'm not signing up for that. But what do Christians do? Christians, in the name of Jesus Christ, we run to the mess. We run with the word for chaos. What's the word? By me being here, I want you to know that God is interested in your mess. Because sometimes we use words. But regardless of whether or not we say anything, we always use a compassionate attitude. I, I've, I figured this out in ministry a long time ago. Um, sometimes we can say some things, and we have to. We'll come to that in a minute. But sometimes I've been approached by people in a horrific setting. Or, you know what? I've walked into many hospital rooms where despair is the name of the patient in the bed. That's their first name, despair. And I, I don't know, there's not a lot of things you can say in moments like that. You know, oh, you're going to get better. Or, or you're, you're standing in line at a funeral visitation. What do you, guess, what do you say to the family that makes, that makes it any better? Nothing dramatic, right? Say, oh, she's in a better place. Well, fair enough, but there's, uh, there's still grief. I'm sorry for your loss. Fair enough again, but it hasn't made the loss go away. What are we doing in those moments? It's not the language we say. It's the fact that we showed up. Sometimes silence is the best thing, but being there and holding the hand. Some, you, know what, you know what we call it in seminary? It's called the ministry of presence. You sit there at the side of the bed, you hold their hand. You stand in the line and you hold them and you hug them and say, I'm praying. Our silence sometimes is better than any collection of feeble words that we can't jumble together. However, sometimes like Ezekiel, in the midst of chaos, we still have to speak. And in those moments, we have to speak about repentance. And we'll do more with this next week because sometimes the, the struggle, the mess, is there because that person or somebody else or that group of people made a decision or that dishonored both God and the image of, hum the image of God within the humans that are involved. 
And at that point, the Ezekiels of our day, we have to speak about repentance. At times we have to confront, we say, you need to stop this, stop that. And we're gonna do that next week. We're gonna look at some ways in which we have to say, stop, repent. But no, even if we do it that, if we don't have to say that, we always have to speak with humility. And this was Ezekiel's approach. Remember what we said earlier on as we looked at this story? He, he has this vision, he goes into God's presence, and only after he's in God's presence can he speak to the chaos around him. It's only after he has fallen flat on his face before God. It's only after he is humble that he gets to be used by God's speaking language. In other words, if we're going to speak to the culture around us, if we're going to speak to the messes around us, if we're going to speak to the messes even in our own lives, and our own families, we have to do that from a position of humility. Frankly, that's why as staff said, so Wayne, do you want to preach at a pulpit? Do you want to? I said, I think I need to sit down when I get to this point. Because I need you to understand, we, we could declare, we could pound pulpits all we want at the world around us. But if we, we have to come with humility. I mean, it's always about falling down before God. Do you, do you recall Ezekiel's automatic response to God's presence when he sees God in, in, at the end of chapter one? Go back there and look again. Verse 28, what does he do? He falls face down before God. He worships. And it happens again later in, in chapter three. It says, I got up and I went out to the plain and the glory of the Lord was standing there just like in chapter one, just like the glory I'd seen by the Kabar River. And what does he do? He falls down again. He's got this huge message he has to bring to all the shaking. He's the red rough lemur of his day, but he's only going to speak from a position of humility. Not one member of his audience, all the people living in exile, could say that he spoke with haughtiness. And I would suggest, friends, particularly as we look at this next week and we talk about some things we need to say to our culture or say to our families, we can never be haughty because we are reminded that the reality, the fact that we are Christians comes from the fact that Jesus died for us. So we're going to, in the midst of worship today, remind each other and ourselves that Jesus died for us. And we're going to have communion. If you are serving today, would you go and prepare? Because I'm reminded of God's gift in Jesus Christ. That we have God's presence here in ways that Ezekiel and his contemporaries could only imagine. I mean, this is, by the time Ezekiel is speaking, this is six, 586, so it's almost 600 years before Jesus came along. 581, actually, but you get the idea. And so he, he knows there's a Messiah coming, but he doesn't understand when that's going to be. And yet we, we're on the other side of that. And we can say, God's presence showed up. It's called the incarnation. God showed up in the form of Jesus. And if you want to see God's presence, look at the cross. God's presence is found in this moment together. And so I would say, friends, if you follow Jesus, you're invited to be humble before the Lord right now and say, God, I'm going to take this cup and this bread and I'm going to remember that Jesus died for me and that anything I do coming out of this message from Ezekiel is only based on his humility. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, I'd suggest you could become one. We're going to pray, and as we pray, you could say, God, forgive me of my sins. 
And in doing so, we humble ourselves before God before we speak to the people around us, before we come with any attitude. No, we come in humility. Let's pray together. Father God, you sent us Jesus Christ, and for that we are truly thankful. I, I, I'm, every time I come to moments like this, God, I'm, I'm stunned when I realize that, wow, the God of the universe sent his son Jesus to die for me. So Lord, before I get really high and mighty or any of us get like this, thus saith the Lord, fair enough, God, we may need to do that, but certainly not from a position of haughtiness, but rather from a sense of humility, sometimes with words, sometimes without words. God, we will say, in your presence, in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ, in light of his death, we remember that he died for us. We will fall down. We will be like the prophet Isaiah when he was in your presence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You are so otherworldly than us. And yet we worship you today in humility. Thank you for your gift of Christ in whose name we pray saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Would you read with me, please? The eternal, the everlasting God, the creator of the whole world, never gets tired or weary. His wisdom is beyond understanding. Praise the Lord, salvation and glory and power truly belong to our God. He deserves all the glory we can give him. For all that exists originates in him, comes through him and is moving towards him. So give him the glory forever. Praise the Lord, salvation and glory and power truly belong to our God. He deserves all the glory we can give him. To you, Lord, I give my whole heart, a heart filled with praise, for I am grateful. My heart sings praises to you and you alone. I bow before you and praise your name for your unfailing love and your truth. Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power truly belong to our God. He deserves all the glory we can give Him. Would you stand in all the rooms and let's sing together. We fall down. Indeed, we do cry holy, holy. This week, Lord, we will choose to live humble before you, thankful for the gift of Jesus Christ, thankful for uh, the word of the word of God deep within us. We'll live it out. We'll um, we'll be present in the places of crisis. 
we'll be, uh, we'll be, we'll be actively engaged in the lives of people who are in a mess and uh, even in the places, Lord, of our own lives that there's struggle. We won't, we won't step away from that. We'll take on what you give us, like Ezekiel did. But Lord, from humility, we'll do it in the name of Christ.